Continuing in our reading of Thomas Watson's The Ten Commandments, Part 4, The Way of Salvation, under Part 3, The Word, answering the question, How may we hear the Word that it may be effectual and saving to our souls? Point 5, Mingle the Word preached with faith. The Word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith, Hebrews 4, 2. If you leave out the chief ingredient in a medicine, it hinders the operation. Do not leave out the ingredient of faith. Believe the word, and so believe it as to apply it. When you hear Christ preached, apply him to yourselves. This is to put on the Lord Jesus, Romans 13:14. When you hear a promise spoken, apply it. This is to suck the flower of the promise and turn it to honey. Sixth, be not only attentive in hearing, but retentive after hearing. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip, lest we should let them run out as water out of a sieve. Hebrews 2, 1. If the ground retain not the seed sown into it, there can be no good crop. Some have memories like leaking vessels. The sermons they hear are presently gone, and there is no good done. If meat does not stay and digest in the stomach, it will not nourish. Satan labors to steal the word out of the mind. When they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown. Mark 4.15 Our memories should be like the chest of the ark where the law was put. Seventh, reduce your hearing to practice. Live on the sermons you hear, as in the Psalms I have done thy commandments. Rachel wasn't content that she was beautiful, but her desire was to be fruitful. What is a knowing head without a fruitful heart? Filled with the fruits of righteousness, Philippians 1-2. It is obedience that crowns hearing. That hearing will never save the soul which does not reform the life. Eighth, beg of God that he will accompany his word with his presence and blessing. The Spirit must make all effectual. Ministers may prescribe physic, but it is God's Spirit must make it work. He hath in his pulpit heaven that converts souls, from Augustine. While Peter yet spake, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard, Acts 10:44. It is said that the alchemist can draw oil out of iron. God's Spirit can produce grace in the most obdurate heart. Ninth, if you would have the word work effectually to your salvation, make it familiar to you. Discourse of what you have heard when you come home. My tongue shall speak of thy word, from the Psalms. One reason why some people get no more good by what they hear is that they never speak to one another of what they have heard. If sermons were such secrets that they must not be spoken of again, or as if it were a shame to speak of matters of salvation... They that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and a book of remembrance was written, Malachi 3.16. Use 1. Take heed as you love your souls that the word become not ineffectual to you. There are some to whom the word preached is ineffectual. First, such as censure the word, who instead of judging themselves, judge the word. Second, such as live in contradiction to the word, Isaiah 39. Such, thirdly, as are more hardened by the word, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, Zechariah 7:12. And when men harden their hearts willfully, God hardens them judicially. Make their ears heavy, Isaiah 6:10. The word to these is ineffectual. Would it not be sad if a man's meat did not nourish him, nay, if it should turn to poison? 
Oh, take heed that the word preached is not ineffectual and to no purpose. Use two. Consider three things. One, if the word preached does us no good, there is no other way by which we can be saved. This is God's institution and the main engine he uses to convert souls. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Luke 16.31 If an angel should come to you out of heaven and preach of the excellency of the glorified estate and the joys of heaven, and that in the most pathetic manner, if the word preached does not persuade, neither would you be wrought upon by such an oration from heaven. If a damned spirit should come from hell and preach to you in flames and tell you what a place hell is and roar out the torments of the damned, it might make you tremble, but it wouldn't convert, if the preaching of the word will not do it. Two, come to the word and not be savingly wrought upon? <laughs> That's what the devil is pleased with. He cares not, though you hear frequently, if it be not effectually. He's not an enemy to hearing, but profiting. Though the minister holds out the breasts of the ordinances to you, he cares not as long as you do not suck the sincere milk of the word. The devil cares not how many sermon pills you take, so long as they do not work upon your conscience. 3. If the word preached be not effectual to men's conversion, it will be effectual to their condemnation. The word will be effectual one way or other. If it does not make your hearts better, it will make your chains heavier. We pity those who have not the word preached, but it will be worse with those who are not sanctified by it. Dreadful is their case who go loaded with sermons to hell. But I will conclude with the apostle, I am persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation. Hebrews 6, 9. Part 4. Baptism. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them, etc. Matthew 28:19. Point 1. The way whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption is in the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments in general? They are the visible signs of invisible grace. Is not the word of God sufficient to salvation? What need, then, is there of sacraments? We must not be wise above what is written. It is God's will that his church should have sacraments, and it is God's goodness thus to condescend to weak capacities. Except ye see signs, ye will not believe, John 4.48. To strengthen our faith, God confirms the covenant of grace, not only by promises, but by sacramental signs. What are the sacraments of the New Testament? 2. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Are there no more? The papists tell us of five more. Confirmation, penance, matrimony, orders, and extreme unction. Point 1. There were but two sacraments under the law, therefore there are no more now. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 2, 3, and 4. Point 2. These two sacraments are sufficient, the one signifying our entrance into Christ, and the other our growth and perseverance in Him. Second point, the first sacrament is baptism. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them, etc. Go teach all nations. The Greek word is make disciples of all nations. If it be asked, how should we make them disciples? It follows, baptizing them and teaching them. In a heathen nation, first teach and then baptize them. But in a Christian church, first baptize and then teach them. What is baptism? 
in general, it is a matriculation or visible admission of children into the congregation of Christ's flock. More particularly, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing or sprinkling with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost doth signify and seal our ingrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. What is meant by the parent when he presents his child to be baptized? The parent, in presenting the child to be baptized, first makes a public acknowledgment of original sin, that the soul of his child is polluted, therefore needs washing from sin by Christ's blood and spirit, both which washings are signified by the sprinkling of water in baptism. Second, the parent, by bringing his child to be baptized, solemnly devotes it to the Lord and enrolls it in God's family, and truly it is a great satisfaction to a religious parent to have given up his child to the Lord in baptism. How can a parent look with comfort on that child who was never dedicated to God? What is the benefit of baptism? The party baptized has, first, an entrance into the visible body of the church. Second, he has a right to the ordinances, which is a privilege full of glory, Romans 9.4. Third, the child baptized is under a more special providential care of Christ, who appoints the tutelage of angels to be the infant's lifeguard. Is this all the benefit? No. To such as belong to the election, baptism is a seal of the righteousness of faith, a laver of regeneration, and a badge of adoption, Romans 4.11. How does it appear that children have a right to baptism? Children are parties in the covenant of grace. The covenant was made with them. I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. Genesis 17.7 The promise is to you and to your children, Acts 2.39. The covenant of grace may be considered either, first, more strictly, as an absolute promise to saving grace, and so none but the elect are in covenant with God, or, second, more largely, as a covenant containing in it many outward glorious privileges, in which respects the children of believers do belong to the covenant of grace. The promise is to you and to your seed, the infant seed of believers may as well lay a claim to the covenant of grace as their parents, and having a right to the covenant, they cannot justly be denied baptism, which is its seal. It is certain the children of believers were once visibly in covenant with God, and received the seal of their admission into the church. Where now do we find this covenant interest, or church membership of infants, repealed or made void? Certainly Jesus Christ did not come to put believers and their children into a worse condition than they were in before. If the children of believers should not be baptized, they are in worse condition now than they were before Christ's coming. Objections. First, the scripture is silent herein and does not mention infant baptism. Though the word infant baptism is not in scripture, yet the thing is, mention is not made in scripture of woman's receiving the sacrament, but who doubts but the command, take, eat, this is my body, concerns them. Does not their faith need strengthening as well as others? So the word Trinity is not to be found in Scripture, but there is that which is equivalent to it. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, 1 John 5, 7. So although the word infant baptism is not mentioned in Scripture, the practice of baptizing infants may be drawn from Scripture by undeniable consequence. How is that proved? The Scripture mentions whole families baptized as the household of Lydia, Crispus, and the jailer, he was baptized, he and all his, Acts 16.33, 
wherein we must rationally imagine that there were some little children. If it be said there is no mention here made of children, I answer neither are servants named, and yet it cannot be supposed but that in so great a family there were some servants. But infants are not capable of the end of baptism, for baptism signifies the washing away of sin by the blood of Christ. Infants cannot understand this, therefore what benefit can baptism be to them? Neither could the child that was to be circumcised understand circumcision, yet the ordinance of circumcision was not to be omitted or deferred. Though an infant understand not the meaning of baptism, it may partake of the blessing of baptism. The little children that Christ took in his arms understood not Christ's meaning, but they had Christ's blessing. He put his hands upon them and blessed them, Mark 10:16. But what benefit can the child have of baptism if it understand not the nature of baptism? It may have a right to the promise sealed up, which it shall have an actual interest in when it comes to have faith. A legacy may be of use to the child in the cradle, though it now understands not the legacy, yet when it is grown up to years, it is fully possessed of it. But it may further be objected. The party to be baptized is to be engaged to God. How can the child enter into such an engagement? The parents can engage for it, which God is pleased to accept as equivalent to the child's personal engagement. If baptism comes in the place of circumcision and the males only were circumcised, what warrant is there for baptizing females? Genesis 17.10 Females were included and were virtually circumcised in the males. What is done to the head is done to the body, the man being the head of the woman. 1 Corinthians 11.3 What was done to the male sex was interpretively done to the female. Second point, having answered these objections, I come now to prove by argument infant baptism. Point one. If children during their infancy are capable of grace, they are capable of baptism. But children in their infancy are capable of grace, therefore they are capable of baptism. I prove the minor that they are capable of grace, thus, if children in their infancy may be saved, then they are capable of grace. But children in their infancy may be saved, which is thus proved that if the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, they may be saved. But the kingdom of heaven may belong to them, as it is clear from of such is the kingdom of God, Mark 10.14. Who can then forbid that the seal of baptism should be applied to them? Point two. If infants may be among the number of God's servants, there is no reason why they should be shut out of God's family. But infants may be in the number of God's servants, because God calls them his servants. He shall depart from thee and his children with him, for they are my servants. Leviticus 25.41 Therefore, children in their infancy, being God's servants, why should they not have baptism, which is the tessera, the mark or seal which God sets upon his servants? Point three, but now are they, your children, holy? 1 Corinthians 7.14 Children are not called holy as if they were free from original sin, but in the judgment of charity they are to be esteemed holy, and true members of the church of God, because their parents are believers. Hence that excellent divine, Mr. Hilderson, says that the children of the faithful, as soon as they are born, have a covenant holiness, and so a right and title to baptism, which is the token of the covenant. Point four, from the opinion of the fathers and the practice of the church. The ancient fathers were strong asserters of infant baptism, as Irenaeus, Basil, Lactantius, Cyprian, and Augustine. It was the practice of the Greek church to baptize her infants, Erasmus says that infant baptism has been used in the Church of God for above 1,400 years. And Augustine, in his book against Pelagius, affirms that it had been the custom of the Church in all ages to baptize infants. 
Yea, it was an apostolic practice. Paul affirms that he baptized the whole house of Stephanus. 1 Corinthians 1.16 Having seen scripture arguments for infant baptism, let us consider whether the practice of those who delay the baptizing of children till riper years be warrantable. For my part, I cannot gather it from Scripture. Though we read of adult persons and grown up to years of discretion in the apostles' times being baptized, yet they were such as were converted from heathenish idolatry to the true Orthodox faith. But that in a Christian church the children of believers should be kept unbaptized for several years, I know neither precept nor example for it in Scripture, but it is wholly apocryphal. The baptizing of persons grown up to maturity, we may argue, against ab effectu from the ill consequence of it. They dipped the persons they baptized over head and ears in cold water and naked, which as it is indecent, so is it dangerous, and has often been the occasion of chronic disease, uh, yea, and of death itself, and so was a plain breach of the sixth commandment. How far God has given up many persons who are for deferring baptism to other vile opinions and vicious practices is evident if we consult history especially if we read the doings of the Anabaptists in Germany. Use 1. See the riches of God's goodness, who will not only be the God of believers, but takes their seed into covenant with them. I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed. Genesis 17.7 A father counts it a great privilege not only to have his own name, but his child's name put in a will. Used to, those parents are to be blamed who forbid little children to be brought to Christ and withhold from them this ordinance. By denying their infants' baptism, they exclude them from membership in the visible church, so that their infants are sucking pagans. Such as deny their children baptism make God's institutions under the law more full of kindness and grace to children than they are under the gospel. Which, how strange a paradox it is, I leave you to judge. Use 3 for exhortation. First, let us who are baptized labor to find the blessed fruits of it in our own souls, not only to have the signs of the covenant, but the grace of the covenant. Many glory in their baptism. The Jews gloried in their circumcision because of their royal privileges. To them belonged the adoption and the glory and the covenants, Romans 9, 4. But many of them were ashamed and reproached to their circumcision, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, Romans 2, 24. The scandalous Jews, though circumcised, were in God's account as heathens. Are ye not as children of the Ethiopians to me, saith the Lord, Amos 9, 7? Alas, what is it to have the name of Christ and lack his image? What is baptism of water without the baptism of the Spirit? Many baptized Christians are no better than heathens. Oh, let us labor to find the fruits of baptism that Christ is formed in us, Galatians 4.19, that our nature is changed, that we are made holy and heavenly. This is to be baptized into Jesus, Romans 6.3. Such as live unsuitable to their baptism may go with baptismal water on their faces and sacramental bread in their mouths to hell. Second, let us labor to make a right use of our baptism. Let us use it as a shield against temptations. Satan, I have given up myself to God by a sacred vow in baptism. I am not my own. I am Christ's. Therefore I cannot yield to thy temptations, for I should break my oath of allegiance, which I made to God in baptism. 
Luther tells us of a pious woman who, when the devil tempted her to sin, answered, Satan, I am baptized, and so beat back the tempter. Let us use it as a spur to holiness. By remembering our baptism, let us be stirred up to make good our baptismal engagements, renouncing the world, flesh, and devil. Let us devote ourselves to God and His service. To be baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost implies a solemn dedication of ourselves to the service of all the three persons in the Trinity. It is not enough that our parents dedicate us to God in baptism, but we must dedicate ourselves to Him. This is called living to the Lord, Romans 14.8. Our life should be spent in worshiping God, in loving God, in exalting God. We should walk as becomes the gospel, Philippians 1.27. We should shine as stars in the world and live as earthly angels. Let us use baptism as an argument to courage. We should be ready to confess that holy trinity into whose name we were baptized, with the conversion of the heart must go the confession of the tongue. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Luke 12.8 Peter openly confessed Christ crucified. Acts 4.10 Cyprian, the man of brave spirit, was like a rock whom no waves could shake, like an adamant whom no sword could cut. He confessed Christ before the proconsul, and suffered himself to be proscribed, yea, chose death rather than betray the truths of Christ. He that dare not confess the Holy Trinity shames his baptism, and God will be ashamed to own him at the day of judgment. Use 4. See the fearfulness of the sin of apostasy. It is renouncing our baptism. It is damnable perjury to go away from God after a solemn vow. Demas hath forsaken me, 2 Timothy 4.10. He turned renegade, and afterwards became a priest in an idol temple, says Dorotheus. Julian the Apostate, Gregory Nazianzen observes, bathed himself in the blood of beasts offered in sacrifice to heathen gods and so as much as in him lay washed off his former baptism. The case of such as fall away after baptism is dreadful. If any man draw back, Hebrews 10.38, the Greek word to draw back alludes to a soldier that steals away from his colors. So if any man steal away from Christ and run over to the devil's side, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. That is, I will be severely avenged on him. I will make my arrows drunk with his blood. If all the plagues in the Bible can make that man miserable, he shall be so. Part 5. The Lord's Supper And as they did eat, Jesus took bread, etc. Mark chapter 14 and verse 22. Having spoken to the sacrament of baptism, I come now to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the most spiritual and sweetest ordinance that ever was instituted. Here we have to do more immediately with the person of Christ. In prayer we draw nigh to God. In the sacrament we become one with Him. In prayer we look up to Christ. In the sacrament, by faith, we touch Him. In the Word preached we hear Christ's voice. In the sacrament we feed on Him. Question, what names and titles in Scripture are given to the sacrament? 
It is called the Lord's Table in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. The papists call it an altar, not a table. The reason is because they turn the sacrament into a sacrifice and pretend to offer up Christ corporally in the Mass. In it being the Lord's table shows with what reverence and solemn devotion we should approach these holy mysteries. The Lord takes notice of the frame of our hearts when we come to his table. The king came in to see the guests, Matthew 22, 2. We dress ourselves when we come to the table of some great monarch. So when we're going to the table of the Lord, we should dress ourselves by holy meditation and heart consideration. Many think it is enough to come to the sacrament, but mind not whether they come in due order. First Chronicles 15.13 Perhaps they had a scarce, uh, serious thought before where they were going. All their dressing up was by the mirror, not by the Bible. Chrysostom calls it the dreadful table of the Lord, and so it is to such as come unworthily. The sacrament is called, in the Latin, the Lord's Supper, to import, it is a spiritual feast, 1 Corinthians 11.20. It is a royal feast. God is in this cheer. Christ in both natures, God and man, is the matter of this supper. It is called a communion, the bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10.16? The sacrament being called a communion shows first that this ordinance is for believers only because none else can have communion with Christ in these holy mysteries. Communion is based upon union. Faith only gives us union with Christ, and by virtue of this we have communion with Him in His body and blood. None but the spouse communicates with her husband. A stranger may drink of his cup, but she only has his heart and communicates with him in a conjugal manner. So strangers may drink of the cup, but believers only drink of Christ's blood and have communion with Him. Second, the sacrament being a communion shows that it is a symbol of love, a bond of that unity and charity which should be among Christians. We, being many, are one body, 1 Corinthians 10.17. As many grains make one bread, so many Christians are one body. A sacrament is a love feast. The primitive Christians, as Justin Martyr notes, had their holy salutations at the Blessed Supper in token of that dearness of affection which they had to each other. It is a communion, therefore, there must be love and union. The Israelites did eat the Passover with bitter herbs, so must we eat the sacrament with bitter herbs of repentance, but not with bitter hearts of wrath and malice. The hearts of the communicants should be knit together with the bond of love. Thou braggest of thy faith, says Augustine, but show me thy faith by thy love to the saints. For as the sun, light, and heat are inseparable, so faith and love are twisted together inseparably. Where there are divisions, the Lord's Supper is not properly a communion, but a disunion. Question, what is the Lord's Supper? It is a visible sermon wherein Christ crucified is set before us, or it is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein by receiving the holy elements of bread and wine, our communion with Christ is signified and sealed up to us, or it is a sacrament divinely instituted, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine, 
Christ's death is showed forth, and the worthy receivers by faith are made partakers of his body and blood, and all the benefits flowing from thence. For further explaining the nature of the Lord's Supper, I shall refer to its institution. Jesus took bread. Here is the master of the feast, or the institutor of the sacrament. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, took bread. He only is fit to institute a sacrament who is able to give virtue and blessing to it. He took bread. His taking the bread was only one part of his consecration of the elements, and setting them apart for a holy use. As Christ consecrated the elements... So we must labor to have our hearts consecrated before we receive these holy mysteries in the Lord's Supper. How unseemly it is to see any come to these holy elements having hearts leavened with pride, covetousness, or envy. These with Judas receive the devil in the sop and are no better than crucifiers of the Lord of glory. Jesus blessed it. This is another part of the consecration of the element. Christ blessed the bread. He blessed, and it shall be blessed. He looked up to heaven for a benediction upon this newly found ordinance. And break it. The bread broken and the wine poured out signify to us the agony and ignominy of Christ's sufferings, the rending of Christ's body on the cross and the effusion of blood which was distilled from his blessed side. And gave it to them. Christ's giving the bread denotes giving himself and all his benefits to us freely in this newly founded ordinance. Though he was sold, yet he was given. Judas sold Christ, but Christ gave himself to us. He gave it to them, that is, to the disciples. This is children's bread. Christ does not cast these pearls before swine. Whether Judas was present at the supper is controverted. I incline to think he was not, for Christ said to the disciples, This is my blood which is shed for you. Luke 22.20 He knew his blood was never shed effectually and intentionally for Judas. In eating the Passover, he gave Judas a sop which was a bit of unleavened bread dipped in a sauce made with bitter herbs. Judas, having received the sop, went out immediately. John 13.30 Suppose Judas was there. He received the elements, but not the blessing. Take, eat, Jesus said. This expression of eating denotes four things. One, the near mystic union between Christ and his saints. As the meat which is eaten incorporates with the body and becomes one with it, so by eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood spiritually, we partake of his merits and graces and are mystically one with them. I in them. John 17.23 2. Take, eat. Eating shows the infinite delight the believing soul has in Christ. Eating is grateful and pleasing to the palate, so feeding on Christ by a lively faith is delicious. As it said, the soul knows no sweeter food, Lactantius. No such sweet feeding as on Christ crucified. This is a feast of fat things and wines on the lees well refined. 3. Take, eat. Eating denotes nourishment 
As meat is delicious to the palate, so it is nourishing to the body. So eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood is nutritive to the soul. The new creature is nourished at the table of the Lord to everlasting life. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. John 6:54. For take eat. This shows the wisdom of God, who restores us by the same means by which we fell. We fell by taking and eating the forbidden fruit. We are recovering again by taking and eating Christ's flesh. We died by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we live by eating of the tree of life. This is my body. These words have been much controverted between us and the papists. This is my body. That is, by a metonymy. It is a metonymy. It is a sign and figure of my body. The papists hold transubstantiation that the bread after consecration is turned into the very substance of Christ's body. We say we receive Christ's body spiritually. They say they receive Christ's body carnally, which is contrary to Scripture. Scripture affirms that the heavens must receive Christ's body until the times of the restitution of all things. Acts 3.21 Christ's body cannot at the same time be in heaven and in the host, so-called. Aquinas says it is not possible by any miracle that a body should be locally in two places at once. Besides, it is absurd to imagine that the bread and the sacrament should be turned into Christ's flesh, and that by some hocus-pocus his body, which was hung before, should be made again of bread, so that this is my body is as if Christ had said, this is the sign and representation of my body. And he took the cup. The cup is put by metonymy of the subject for the adjunct, for the wine in the cup. It signifies the blood of Christ shed for our sins. The taking of the cup denotes the redundancy of merit in Christ and the fullness of our redemption by Him. He not only took the bread, but took the cup. And when He had given thanks... Christ gave thanks that God had given these elements of bread and wine to be signs and seals of man's redemption by Christ. Christ's giving thanks shows his philanthropy or love to mankind, who did so rejoice and bless God that lost man was now in a way of recovery, and that he should be raised higher in Christ than ever he was in innocence. He gave the cup to them. Why then dare any withhold the cup? This is to pollute and curtail the ordinance and alter it from its primitive institution. Christ and his apostles administered the sacrament in both kinds, the bread and the cup, 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25. The cup was received in the ancient church for the space of 1,400 years, as it is confessed by two popish councils. Christ says expressly, Drink ye all of this. He does not say, Eat ye all of this, but drink ye all, as foreseeing the sacrilegious impiety of the church of Rome in keeping back the cup from the people. 
The Popish Council of Constance speaks plainly but impudently that although Christ instituted and administered the sacrament in both kinds, the bread and the wine, yet the authority of the holy canons and the customs of the Mother Church think good to deny the cup to the laity, unquote. Thus, as the popish priests make Christ but half a Savior, so they administer to the people but half a sacrament. The sacrament is Christ's last will and testament. This is my blood of the New Testament. Now, to alter or take away anything from a man's will and testament is a great impiety. What is it to alter and mangle Christ's will and testament? Sure, it is a high affront to Christ. Question. What are the ends of the Lord's Supper? First, it is an ordinance appointed to confirm our faith. Except ye see signs, ye will not believe. John 4:48. Christ sets the elements before us that by these signs our faith may be strengthened. As faith comes by hearing, so it is confirmed by seeing Christ crucified. The sacrament is not only a sign to represent Christ, but a seal to confirm our interest in Him. Question, but the Spirit confirms faith, therefore not the sacrament. This is not good logic. The Spirit confirms faith, therefore not the sacrament, is as if one should say, God feeds our bodies, therefore bread does not feed us. Whereas God feeds us by bread, so the Spirit confirms our faith by the use of the sacrament. Second, the end of the sacrament is to keep up the memory of Christ's death. This do ye in remembrance of me, 1 Corinthians 11.25. If a friend gives us a ring at his death, we wear it to keep up the memory of our friend. Much more ought we to keep the memorial of Christ's death in the sacrament. His death lays a foundation for all the magnificent blessings which we receive from him. The covenant of grace was agreed on in heaven, but sealed upon the cross. Christ has sealed all the articles of peace in his blood. Remission of sin flows from Christ's death. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26:28. Consecration, or making us holy, is the fruit of Christ's death. How much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience? Hebrews 9:14. Christ's intercession is made available to us by virtue of his death. He could not have been admitted an advocate if he had not been first a sacrifice. Our entering into heaven is the fruit of his blood. Hebrews 10.19 He could not have prepared mansions for us if he had not first purchased them by his death, so that we have great cause to commemorate his death in the sacrament. Question. In what manner are we to remember the Lord's death in the sacrament? It is not only an historical remembrance of Christ's death and passion, Judas remembered his death and betrayed him, and Pilate remembered his death and crucified him. But our remembering his death in the sacrament must be, firstly, a mournful remembrance. We should not be able to look on Christ crucified with dry eyes. They shall look on him whom they have pierced and mourn over him. Zechariah 12.10 O Christian, when thou lookest on Christ in the sacrament, remember how often thou hast crucified him. The Jews did it but once, thou often. Every oath is a nail with which thou piercest his hands. Every unjust sinful action is a spear with which thou woundest his heart. 
Oh, remember Christ with sorrow, to think thou shouldst make his wounds bleed afresh. Second, it must be a joyful remembrance. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, John 8.56. When a Christian sees a sacrament day approaching, he should rejoice. This ordinance of the supper is an earnest of heaven. It is the glass, the mirror, in which we see him whom our souls love. It is the chariot by which we are carried up to Christ. When Jacob saw the wagons and the chariots which were to carry him to his son Joseph, his spirit revived. Genesis 55, 27, 45, 27. God has appointed the sacrament on purpose to cheer and revive a sad heart. When we look on our sins, we have cause to mourn. But when we see Christ's blood shed for our sins, we rejoice. In the sacrament our wants are supplied, our strength is renewed. There we meet with Christ, and does not this call for joy? A woman that has been long debarred from the society of her husband is glad of his presence. At the sacrament the believing spouse meets with Christ. He saith to her, All I have is thine. My love is thine to pity thee, my mercy thine to save thee. How can we think in the sacrament on Christ's shed blood and not rejoice? Christ's blood, as it is said, is the key which opens heaven, else we had all been shut out. Thirdly, the end of the sacrament is to work in us an endeared love to Christ. When Christ bleeds for us, well may we say, Behold how he loved us. Who can see Christ die and not be sick of love? That is a heart of stone which Christ's love will not melt. The end of the sacrifice is the mortifying of corruption. Point four, to see Christ crucified for us is a means to crucify sin in us. His death like the water of jealousy, makes the thigh of sin to rot. Numbers 5.27 How can a wife endure to see the spear which killed her husband? How can we endure those sins which made Christ veil his glory and lose his blood? When the people of Rome saw Caesar's bloody robe, they were incensed against them that slew him. Sin has rent the white robe of Christ's flesh and dyed it of a crimson color. The thoughts of this should make us seek to be avenged on our sins. Fifthly, another end is the augmentation and increase of all the graces, hope, zeal, and patience. The word preached begets grace, the Lord's Supper nourishes it. The body by feeding increases strength, so the soul by feeding on Christ sacramentally. As it is said, when my spiritual strength begins to fail, I know a remedy, Bernard. I will go to the table of the Lord. There will I drink and recover my decayed strength. There is a difference between dead stones and living plants. The wicked who are stones receive no spiritual increase, but the godly who are plants of righteousness being watered with Christ's blood grow more fruitful in grace. Question, why are we to receive the Holy Supper? First, because it is an incumbent duty. Take, eat, and observe. It is a command of love. If Christ had commanded us some great matter, would we not have done it? If the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? Second Kings 5.13 If Christ had enjoined us to have given him thousands of rams, or to have parted with the fruit of our bodies, would not we have done it? 
Much more when he only says, Take and eat. Let my broken body feed you. Let my blood poured out save you. Take and eat. This is a command of love. And shall we not readily obey? Secondly, we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper because it is provoking Christ to stay away. Wisdom hath furnished her table, Proverbs 19, uh, Proverbs 9, verse 2. So Christ has furnished his table and set bread and wine representing his body and blood before his guests, and when they willfully turn their backs upon the ordinance, he looks upon it as a slighting of his love, and it makes the fury rise up in his face. For I say unto you that none of those men who were bidden shall taste of my supper. Luke 14.24 I will shut them out of my kingdom. I will provide them a black banquet where weeping shall be the first course and gnashing of teeth the second. Question. Should the Lord's Supper be often administered? Yes. As often as ye eat this bread, 1 Corinthians 11.26, the ordinance is not to be celebrated once in a year or once only in our lives, but often. A Christian's own necessities may make him come often thither. His corruptions are strong, therefore he had need come often hither for an antidote to expel the poison of sin. His graces are weak. Grace is like a lamp which, if it be not often fed with oil, is apt to go out, Revelation 3.2. How then do they sin against God who come but very seldom to this ordinance? Can they thrive who for a long time forbear their food? Others there are who wholly forbear, which is a great contempt offered to Christ's ordinance. They tacitly say, let Christ keep his feast to himself. We wholly forbear. What a cross-grained peace is a man. He will eat when he should not, and he will not eat when he should. When God says, eat not of this forbidden fruit, then he will be sure to eat. But when God says, eat of this bread and drink of this cup, then he refuses to eat. Question. Are all to come promiscuously to this holy ordinance? No. For that were to make the Lord's table an ordinary table. Christ forbids to cast pearls before swine, Matthew 7, 6. The sacramental bread is children's bread, and it is not to be cast to the profane. As at the giving of the law God set bounds about the mount that none might touch it, so God's table should be guarded, that the profane should not come near, Exodus 19:12. In primitive times, after sermon was done, and the Lord's Supper was about to be celebrated, an officer stood up and cried, Holy things for holy men! And then several of the congregation departed. I would have my hand cut off, says Chrysostom, rather than I would give Christ's body and blood to the profane. The wicked do not eat Christ's flesh, but tear it. They do not drink his blood, but spill it. These holy mysteries in the sacraments are mysteries that the soul is to tremble at. Sinners defile the holy things of God. They poison the sacramental cup. We read that the wicked are to be set at Christ's feet, not at his table, from the Psalms. That we may receive the supper of the Lord worthily, and that it may become efficacious, first, we must solemnly prepare ourselves before we come. We must not rush upon the ordinance rudely and irreverently, but come in due order. 
There was a great deal of preparation for the Passover, and the sacrament comes in the room of it. Second Chronicles 30, verses 18 and 19. This solemn preparation for the ordinance consists, firstly, in examining ourselves. Secondly, in dressing our souls before we come, which is by washing in the water of repentance, and by exciting the habit of grace into exercise. And thirdly, in begging a blessing upon the ordinance. First, solemn preparation for the sacrament consists in self-examination. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. 1 Corinthians 11.28 It is not only a counsel, but a charge. Let him examine himself, as if a king should say, Let it be enacted. These elements in the supper, having been consecrated by Jesus Christ to a high mystery, represent his body and blood. Therefore there must be preparation. And if preparation, there must be first self-examination. Let us be serious in examining ourselves, as our salvation depends upon it. We are curious in examining other things. We will not take gold till we examine it by the touchstone. We will not take land before we examine the title. And shall we not be as exact and curious in examining the state of our souls? What is required for this self-examination? There must be a solemn retirement of the soul. We must set ourselves apart and retire for some time from all secular employment that we may be more serious in the work. There is no casting up accounts in a crowd, nor can we examine ourselves when we are in a crowd of worldly business. We read that a man who was in a journey might not come to the Passover because his mind was full of secular cares, and his thoughts were taken up about his journey. Numbers 9.13 When we are upon self-examining work, we had not need to be in a hurry, or have any distracting thoughts, but to retire and lock ourselves up in our closets, that we may be more intent upon the work. What is self-examination? It is the setting up a court of conscience and keeping a register there, that by a strict scrutiny a man may see how matters stand between God and his soul. It is a spiritual inquisition, a heart anatomy, whereby a man takes his heart in pieces as a watch and sees what is defective therein. It is a dialogue with one's self. From the Psalms, I commune with my own heart. David called himself to account and put in interrogatories to his own heart. Self-examination is a critical inquiry or search, as the woman in the parable lighted a candle and searched for her lost coin. So conscience is the candle of the Lord. Luke 15.8 Search with this candle what thou canst find wrought by the Spirit in thee. What is the rule by which we are to examine ourselves? The rule or measure by which we must examine ourselves is the Holy Scripture. We must not make fancy or the good opinion which others have of us as a rule to judge of ourselves. As the goldsmith brings his gold to the touchstone, so we must bring our hearts to a Scripture touchstone. To the law and to the testimony, Isaiah 8.20, what saith the word? Are we divorced from sin? Are we renewed by the Spirit? Let the word decide whether we are fit communicants or not. We judge colors by the sun, so we must judge of the state of our souls by the sunlight of Scripture. And thus far the reading of Thomas Watson's The Ten Commandments under point four, The Way of Salvation, point five, The Lord's Supper. 
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.